Well, friends, the dense crowd on that fateful day nearly 2,000 years ago seemed to be completely clueless. In fact, the parallel account to this emotional scene, which is found for us over in John's Gospel, poignantly adds to what Mark has just read for us, that Jesus' disciples did not understand these things at first. But when he was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. You see, most of the people out there in the city streets simply never got it. That is, while many of them were shouting, Lord, save us. Hosanna that we've sang this morning, rooted in the name Joshua, which is the very same name of Jesus. Salvation, save us. While these people shouted, save us, Lord, the gospel writer Luke tells us that Jesus himself was weeping bitterly over this beloved city and over its precious people, saying in Luke 19, 42, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. Yes, friends, that first Palm Sunday scene was one rich with redemptive irony. There the masses of Passover pilgrims assembled on the outskirts of Jerusalem hoped for a warrior-like king riding in on a white stallion. But instead, they only saw a humble carpenter trotting past on a lowly donkey. These people wanted hype and hysteria, but all they got instead was a holy healer for their wounds. The Jews that day wanted a hand to hold a scepter, but God sent them a savior to hold the nails. The people wanted a prophet, but what they got that day was the fulfillment of a 500-year-old prophecy. You see, they got nothing that they wanted, but everything that they needed. Yes, the crowd that day was totally clueless, but at last, at long last, they were no longer Christless. In fact, in retrospect, the only person who seemed to understand what was happening on that first Palm Sunday in Jerusalem was just the humble man sitting there on the donkey, smiling through tears as he came to bring his people peace. Who is this? As Mark read for us in Mark 21 verse 10, the crowds of people said, who is this? That is the question, is it not? Who is this Jesus? Listen, Matthew alone, it seems to me, out of all the gospel writers, and they each record a narrative account of the triumphal entry of Christ in Jerusalem, but only Matthew seems to underscore and highlight the fact that Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem, that they was in direct fulfillment of Zechariah's ancient prophecy. We read in Matthew 21, verses 4 and 5, that this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, again the prophet Zechariah, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humbled, humble, and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. 
The question, who is this, still looms over all hearers of this passage still 2,000 years later. I want you to hear this morning and see freshly who Jesus is. Who is this king? You see, Matthew himself was numbered among those misunderstanding disciples that day. He did not understand deeply and fundamentally who Jesus was until maybe a few days later after the resurrection of Christ and writing about it even decades later in the gospel account of Matthew, saying to the people and the pilgrims, behold your king. You see, our king on Palm Sunday was a king robed in humility, but our king on Good Friday was a king adorned in agony. And our king on Easter Sunday is a king of resurrection glory. Today's key idea, the big idea from this text, is simply that the the events of Palm Sunday reveal that Jesus Christ is a joy-giving king, a righteously rescuing king, a gentle and lowly king, and an eminently returning king king for us. He's the king that none of us wanted, but the one that all of us so desperately needed. That is the king of this passage this morning. You know, out of the more than 300 biblical prophecies concerning the Jewish Messiah, the one found over here in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, is surely one of the most well-known. Perhaps a bit of background would be helpful for us this morning to understand it. To begin with, we need to see that the Babylonian exile, which began in the year 587 B.C. for the southern kingdom of Judah, was now at last finally over. And the prophet Zechariah, whose name, sweetly enough, simply means God remembers. God had remembered his people, so he raised up Zechariah to remind them of such along with his prophetic contemporary, a man by the name of Haggai, as we read of them in Ezra chapter 5 and verse 1, among other places, they lived and worked among those struggling but ecstatic Jews who were now back in their precious homeland. But more specifically, in 538 B.C., after the Babylonian Empire fell uh, to the Persian, the the new superpower, the, the kingdom of Persia, and their new ruler... King Cyrus, and how he issued a decree enabling and assisting more than 50,000 Jewish exiles under the leadership of a man by the name of Zerubbabel and Jeshua to to resettle and begin the work of rebuilding this once glorious temple. That is the background for this ancient prophecy. But listen, less than 20 years later after their return, the work on the temple had tragically stalled. Therefore, God raised up the prophets Zechariah and Haggai to encourage the people to continue their work of rebuilding the temple and seeing it to its completion. In fact, we read, for example, in Zechariah chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, these words, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. In many wonderful ways, 
Zechariah's multiple mysterious prophecies not only anticipate the completion of God's own house there in Jerusalem, that is the once glorious temple, but they also anticipate the culmination of redemptive history itself in the arrival of a coming and eternally glorious king. Earlier in Zechariah chapter 2 and verse 10, we read this, Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion. Sounds familiar. For behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people and I will dwell in their midst. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. You see, God's anointed king would at long last come. The king that all other kings had pointed to would arrive. God himself would once again dwell among his people in righteousness, peace, true peace would finally come to Israel. Now to this important point, the ninth chapter of the prophecy of Zechariah begins to answer the really all-important question, well, what will this king be like? How will we he discern his coming? How will we recognize him even? By the way, for the handful of you who may be Lord of the Rings fans, any Tolkien fans, Lord of the Rings fans, there's actually an interesting little scene that parallels today's passage. It's found in the third book of the trilogy called The Return of the King, where the hero Aragorn, who is the rightful claimant to the throne of Gondor, returns to the city of Minas Tirith. I don't speak Elvish or any of those languages. <laughs> But it means the city of kings. The city of kings. Here Aragorn is victorious in battle against the dark lord Sauron. But he's not yet able to claim his rightful throne. In this scene, Aragorn enters the city in disguise. In order to go to the houses of healing. And there he seeks to heal his friends who were wounded in the prior battle. And as he performs this healing... One of the attendants repeats an ancient prophecy. The hands of the king are hands of a healer. And so shall the rightful king be known. How beautiful is that? That the hands of the true king are the hands of a healer. Marked with nails for us. Well, Friends, listen. I want you to notice in this passage that immediately following this section that begins in uh, Zechariah 9, verse 1, we're not going to look at, don't have time to look at that passage this morning, in which there is a prophecy about a different kind of king, a king that I believe is Alexander the Great of Greece, prophesied about in those particular verses, and his coming conquest over the eastern Mediterranean coastlands, how Alexander would threaten the people of Israel, even at that time, how that description of, of Alexander the Great is then contrasted with uh, the, the description of the true king, the king of heaven, Jesus Christ himself, by the prophet Zechariah, beginning in verse 9 and following, where we read these words. 
Whatever you know of Alexander the Great, think of the antithesis of it in terms of earthly splendor and royalty. Rejoice, Zechariah 9 verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And then in verse 10, and I think we should read this verse in concert with the previous, we read these words, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. This morning I want to share with you four characteristics of an utterly glorious king. The first thing I want you to notice is that this king that Zechariah predicts is a king who is a joy-giving king. A joy-giving king. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Now I'm indebted to Pastor John Piper who highlights this point as he describes the arrival of Jesus as a king who makes his people happy. He makes his people happy. Pastor Piper says, He that is Jesus is no Nero who fiddles while Rome burns. He is not a Marcos who lives in lavish luxury while his land languishes in extreme poverty. He is not an Ayatollah that shames his citizens. He is the kind of king that will make the daughter of Jerusalem, the offspring of Zion, leap for joy. Children will sing Hosanna. Old men will dream dreams. Slave girls will prophesy. The blind will see. The lame will walk and the deaf will hear. The lepers will be cleansed. The poor will have good news preached to them. As Zechariah commands the daughter of Zion to shout for joy because the king is coming and he will be the kind of king that makes his people happy. How glorious is that? But how unlike us. It often is. Does the world see the church as a people whose God makes them happy? Or as a people forlorn? A people with solemn faces? May the joy of our heart overflow on our face. Because he's worthy of it. Well, Listen, beyond the mere exuberance of one day, Zechariah wasn't just pointing to one day of great happiness. It's Palm Sunday of 33 AD, perhaps. I want you to see that the entire ministry of Jesus Christ during those 33 years on earth was one characterized by an overflowing with incredible heaven-sent joy. You want to talk about a happy time on earth. It was the time that Christ was here on earth. Jesus is a joy-giving king. And we read of this, for example, in John 15, 11. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Or the next chapter, John chapter 16, verse 24, until now you have asked nothing in my name, Jesus says. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. And again in the next chapter of John, chapter 17, verse 13, but now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy in fulfilled in themselves. 
Jesus came to make us truly joyful. Even when the great John the Baptist, do you remember that scene? When the great John the Baptist worried and wavered while waiting his fate under Herod there in prison. And hearing upon the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples to Jesus saying, Are you really the one who is to come? Do you remember that? Or should we look for another? What did Jesus say in response? Matthew 11 verse 4. And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. That the blind receive their sight and the lame walk. That lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. That the dead are raised up. And the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Hey, John, you see any joy lately? I've come. I've come for you. Friends, Jesus Christ is unlike any other leader or king ever to grace the earth. Because he's a king who brings never-ending joy and life which flows from the inside out. It's not circumstantial joy. It's internal, incorruptible, life-giving, eternal joy. That is Zion's king. That is our king who is a joy-giving king. The one who Hebrews 12 verse 2 tells us to look to. Looking to Jesus, the author and founder of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He is a joy-giving king. Never forget that. But Zechariah tells us something next about this same king. He actually roots our experience of never-ending joy directly into the character of faith and righteousness in this Messiah, Jesus. Notice that the text says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. How can we have joy? Because he is righteous. Because he is holy. Because he is just. Another translation renders that phrase, He is righteous and utterly victorious. Listen, Jesus is a king who is not only joy-giving, but he is also himself uncompromisingly just and righteous. Ours is a righteously rescuing ruler who never does wrong or never abuses his people. How very unusual is that? How very refreshing is it to consider such a ruler that we have in heaven? A ruler who is free of corruption. A ruler who is not a crook. A ruler who deals fairly and squarely even as he deals sacrificially for his own people. Now listen, the people of Israel, we should remember, were not so accustomed to having such righteous rulers, were they? That is, the history of the kings both of Israel in the north and Judah in the south, particularly in the time of the divided kingdom after King Solomon was littered with crooked crowns. The covenantal faithlessness both of the northern and southern kingdoms actually was the reason why the exile happened in the first place. God permitted them to have heavy-handed rulers. And then after they were taken in exile, they were dominated by pagan rulers. 
First the Assyrians, then the Babylonians, then the Persians, then the Greeks, then the Romans. Until Christ. Until Christ and his kingdom. Recall that before the arrival either of John the Baptist or Jesus himself, God's people had endured 400 deafening years of silence that were snapped in the announcement of a baby boy. Folks, the point here is that Jesus, his righteousness, his righteous rule would be wonderfully and radically different from any other rule. That is, not only does this concept of righteousness very likely refer to Christ's own inherent righteousness, that, that he is righteous personally, but I also think it's descriptive of the kind of kingdom that he will rule. He is righteous, but his kingdom is also righteous and just. He leads a righteous administration. Now, this is the point that is wonderfully described throughout a variety of psalms about the, right, the Messiah's righteousness. For instance, Psalm 2, verse 6. As for me, the Lord says, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Or one of those verses that I read in my prayer from Psalm 24, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Friends, that ultimately pointed to Jesus Christ. And maybe supremely of Psalm 72, verses 1 through 4, where we read this announcement, Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your peoples with righteousness, and your, people, and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people. Give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. The point of psalm after psalm in reference to this kingdom is that the coming of Jesus meant the arrival of a truly righteous and just kingdom. Oh, how I long to be. We are in that kingdom in a sense, but that kingdom is coming in power and fullness on the earth one day soon. This is exactly what the prophet Jeremiah himself spoke of in Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6. Listen to these words. Behold, the days are coming, Jeremiah writes, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. Listen, the Lord is our righteousness. Yes, he is. Commentator David Barron, to, to me, captures the sense of this so perfectly, where he writes, Christ is the only person in all of history whose character and experience answers to the description of the ideal king in Zechariah. He alone among the sons of men can be described as the true righteous one who did no violence, nor was deceit found in his mouth. And what's more, he says, the Lord Jesus Christ for us men and our salvation also became poor and afflicted, so poor that he himself could say the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. In other words, the ideal king coming to us, as described in Zechariah 9, is a, is, is a king 
who is a joy-giving king and a perfectly just king, but thoroughly understand this morning, he's also shockingly a gentle and lowly king, a humble king. Listen, friend, consider that it was not with such outward pomp or with some shameful display of worldly power and might that Christ came into Jerusalem that Palm Sunday. But rather he came humbly and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. It was no broad street ticker tape parade when Christ came into Jerusalem that day. In other words, the creator himself rode upon a lowly creature that he made on his way to bear the sin of the creatures that he loved. Jesus is everything this world's so-called elites and CEOs are not. That is to say, Jesus could have come insisting on being served. I mean, he made everything, didn't he? Instead, he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Mark 10, 45. Jesus being the image of the invisible God and the firstborn of all creation, the one of whom Paul writes in Colossians 1.16, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, and visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. I suppose he could have come placing a heavy burden, a heavy burden of obedience upon the people, but instead, what did he do? He humbled himself. He took on human flesh, and he became the obedient one by virtue of his death, even on a cross, according to Philippians 2, verse 8. Jesus, who as God possessed all grace and all glory, could have bypassed Calvary and suffering on his way to wearing a crown of rule. But instead, Paul states in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, though he was rich, Yet for our sake, he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Jesus could have demanded our our very lives, but he laid down his own for us. By possessing everything, Christ became as nothing, in order that we who are nothing in grace might possess everything. That is the gospel. That's gentleness, that's lowliness, that's Christ. You see, Jesus didn't ride into Jerusalem on that day in a battle tank seeking to destroy, nor in a Bentley trying to impress, but rather he rode into Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday on a donkey in order to bring peace, because that's the kind of king who we love and we serve. He's a joy-giving patient, perfectly just, and ever gentle king that nobody wanted, but all of us needed. He's the really happy king. He's the truly holy king. He's the amazingly gentle king. And he's an approachable king for you and for me. John Piper proves helpful once more, saying, so what Jesus meant when he chose that donkey to ride on was this. Echoing Matthew 11, verse 29, I am meek and lowly in heart. I am approachable, and you can find rest for your souls right here in me. I am not against you, rather I am for you. I did not come to condemn you, but rather to save you. 
I came on behalf of God my Father in heaven to reconcile you to him, to make peace between you and your maker. That's why Christ came. That's even why Christ came in the way he came. You see, the confused crowds there in Jerusalem were really only partially wrong. The man sitting atop the donkey was in fact a warrior king, but they had the wrong fight. That man sitting there came dressed and ready for battle, but the battle was not with Rome, rather it was with our rebellion, it was with our sinfulness. He came as a conqueror, but in a disguised way. Because the ultimate enemy of our souls is not some kingdom, but it's sin, it's self, it's selfishness. And so Christ came to defeat that enemy on the cross. The Bible says, as Brian read earlier, Ephesians 2, 14 and following, that Jesus himself is our peace, who has made us, both Jew and Gentile, both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Paul says something similar in Colossians 2 verses 13 to 15 where he says, And you, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. The uncircumcision of your flesh, God has made alive together with him, having forgiven all us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in it, that is, in the cross. He came as a warrior, but the war was for our souls. In other words, Jesus is the gentle, humble, life-restoring king that we sorely needed, but we didn't deserve. I'm reminded of a quote from, a, from the famous Dutch Christian and Holocaust survivor, Corey ten Boom. She was once asked if it was difficult for her to remain humble in light of her popularity for all that she had done in saving people. And her reply was as stunning as it was simple. She replied simply, Well, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday on the back of a donkey, and everyone was waving palm branches and throwing garments onto the road and singing his praises, do you think for a moment that it ever entered the head of that old donkey that any of that praise was for him? If I can be the donkey on which Jesus rides in his glory, then I will give him all the praise and all the honor. Oh, that we would be but a simple donkey. Well, we've seen briefly this morning how these events of that first Palm Sunday outside of Jerusalem perfectly fulfilled Zechariah's 500-year-old prophecy. The sin of God to send a king who was joy-giving, perfectly righteous, and ever-gentle. As one author said, though the triumphal entry was a joyful celebration... A Roman spectator would have wondered, and perhaps rightly so, what was so triumphal about it. It didn't at all compare with the kinds of parades that Julius Caesar or other rulers had when they came back from their great victories. In contrast to these, the procession for Jesus that day must have seemed pretty humble, and yet it showed that he was a different kind of king. 
Here's something that perhaps we haven't really noticed much before. Zechariah 9, verse 9, really ought to be read along with verse 10. Because I believe here we see not only one messianic prophecy, but rather two. There is not simply one climactic arrival of Jesus seen here, but rather there are two of them. As Dr. James Montgomery Boyce states, the entire era of the Christian church that is, the entire time between Jesus' first and second coming may rightly said to occur between Zechariah 9, verse 9, and 9, verse 10. In other words, what follows in verse 10 is a prediction still ahead of us of a time when Jesus will come in unmatched power and glory to rule on the earth. Listen to what it says. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim. It's a word meaning the nation of Israel, the people of Israel, the people of God. And the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations and his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Now listen, don't... don't, Lose me here. If you think it's bad to have missed who Christ was at his first coming, how terribly bad do you think it will be to miss who he is at his next coming? You don't want to be asleep when he returns. Zechariah 9 verse 10 speaks, I believe again, of the future final victories of Messiah Jesus upon the earth, a result of which war itself will be abolished. And his peaceful reign will stretch across the earth, as the prophet describes it, from sea to sea. And from the rivers to the ends of the earth. Even as Isaiah 2, verse 2 and following describes. Where Isaiah the prophet says, it shall come to pass in the latter days. That the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. And shall be lifted up above all the hills. And all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from from Jerusalem. And he shall judge between nations, and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares." And their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. The coming kingdom of the crucified and risen Jesus Christ. Will be an age of endless and endurable peace on earth. Jesus' first coming. 2,000 years ago at this point. Culminated in his death on a bloody cross and his resurrection from a borrowed grave. And it established peace between God and sinful man through faith. But Jesus' final coming, his imminent coming, which consummates his rightful and righteous rule on earth, will establish a reign of peace along with his people forever and ever and ever. And friend, this time the Lord, when he appears outside of Jerusalem, listen to me carefully, He's not going to be riding on some donkey symbolizing peace. But rather, as the writer of Revelation 
writes, the, 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 the man John, the disciple, in Revelation 19, verse 11 says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And the one who seated on, on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And his, he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. John also writes in Revelation 1 verse 7 to make it crystal clear. Jesus says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn on account of him. Even so, amen. I ask you this morning, are you ready for this king to return on his horse? Pastor Alistair Begg, I just read that this, this morning in my devotions. Alistair Begg said, pause to ask yourself the question. What kind of king arrives on a donkey and then proceeds to wear a crown of thorns? What sort of humility does that require and what sort of love would that do? Many in the crowd expected the Messiah to be a conquering nationalist hero. That was why their enthusiasm for Jesus lasted only as long as he met their expectations. We need to be careful that we do not decide what sort of king Jesus should be for us and to us and then fleeing accusations at him when he does not meet our demands. Instead, we must see him as he is. The king who came to carry a cross, who calls you and me to do the same as we follow him, and who promises us not a comfortable life now, but an eternal one to come. He is a better, gentler, humbler, more loving king than any of our imaginations could ever have conceived of. Isn't that beautiful? He's a happy-making king. He's a holy and righteous king. He's a humble and approachable king. And finally, he's a highly exalted and returning king. Do you believe in him? I want to close with another passage in Revelation that I just noticed this week. I've read it before, but it just struck me for the very first time that actually includes palm branches. Revelation chapter 7, beginning with verse 9. The writer says, after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes. Notice, with palm branches in their hands. And crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God and who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these? Clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither shall they thirst. 
The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The lamb will be among us. He will be among us as our shepherd, as our sovereign, and as our all-sufficient supply of everlasting water. May we worship him and walk in the light of who he is today. Would you bow with me as I close in prayer? Almighty God and Father, we thank you so very much, Lord, for all that you are to us, all that you have revealed to us, Lord, in the sacred scriptures. Even this morning, Lord, a story that we've heard perhaps 10 to 20 times, many of us, more than that for, for most, we have heard perhaps it freshly today with a sense of understanding who Jesus Christ is in his matchless glory, that he came peacefully, that he himself was one who bore a burden on the way up the hill to Calvary. That beast of burden was bearing the one who would bear our burden as he went to the cross and died for us. And he extends an invitation of peace to anyone here listening this morning. Oh, Father, would you do a work in someone's heart today to save, to save. Hosanna. Lord, save us. Perhaps there's someone here this morning that would join their voice to that crowd, but really understand that the one on the donkey and the one coming on a white horse is the only one who can save them from their sins. Lord, we'll praise you. We'll praise you because you're worthy of praise, because you, every good and perfect gift comes from you, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for this time in the word. Be pleased, O oh Lord, to help us walk in the light of its truth, for we ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen.